1: And welcome, 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 disability law show. Good to have you along for the ride. John Scholes here, simply hosting. I got the easy gig. The brains of the operation is beside me. Tamara Gopian Courtesy, Sam Firu, Tamarkin, LLP. Anytime reaching out to Tamar for more information. And uh, it's the type of type of topic and the type of thing where you might want to take some time privately and talk to Tamar or one of her team to discuss your matter. That's totally, totally cool. You can do that anytime. one 855 821 5900 Help at disabilityrights.ca to jettison. Over an email to tomorrow and her team. We'll get to a bunch of those on the show today as well. And uh, you always have that uh, reach out and that contact. You can also use mydisabilityquestions.com. We'll give you more details on that throughout the hour. But we got a ton of emails and questions coming in already tomorrow, like we do every week. But we always get things warmed up, get it rolling, so to speak, with the other week that was or something you've been working on. Pal, what do you got?
2: getting it rolling john that's what i like um so this week i've been having a couple of conversations with a woman who reached out to us to talk about the denial of her disability claim and it raises a really interesting issue that we don't talk about too too much and that's the timing of her disability claim so I'm going to fast forward to the end. She got denied, John, and we are going to get retained. Uh, but she got denied on a technicality. And what I want to highlight is that insurance companies in these policies have very specific timeframes in which you need to apply for benefits that can include short term and long term. And, and in this woman's situation, John, you know, she's in her fifties. She was working, uh, long, long standing work actually for one of these physiotherapy clinics, one of the large ones actually. She's in her 50s and has been doing that for a number of years and ended up going off on disability last summer, actually. And initially she thought, oh, it's not going to be too long. Her doctor put her off only for about a month. And then things snowballed from there where she had other testing and other health issues that arose, mostly from a physical perspective and her employer gave her the advice that you should be applying for EI sickness benefits and their own workplace um, short-term benefits. But never, they never actually triggered her to think about their long-term disability claim. And so it wasn't until many months later when she realized that she wasn't going back, she received a fairly, fairly firm diagnosis of what was happening with her from a health perspective. And her doctor said, look, until we figure out a good treatment plan for you, you're not going back. I think she was diagnosed with Lupus John and already had fibromyalgia. So uh, for those listeners who are not familiar with either of those conditions, they are very difficult to diagnose and they are very difficult to treat. And that is why it took so, so long, so many months until she more recently got a diagnosis. And now they're thinking about what's an appropriate treatment plan. So in the midst of this, she realizes, look, you know, it doesn't look like I'm getting back to work. And so I, I think I got to think about long-term disability. So she reaches out to her employer again and says, Look, I, I need to go down the path of long term. It's not looking like I'm going back to work anytime soon. And they actually delay sending her the long term disability package. So, what your employer is supposed to do is at least point you in the right direction to say, Hey, you know, this is where you get the forms or here are the forms, I mean, you can get them online as well, but she didn't realize that that was a possibility. She thought the forms had to come from her employer, and her employer didn't disabuse her of that notion, John. It's not like they said, oh, you can go on the internet. They just said, oh, we got to get back to you, got to get back to you. And so it took them something like three weeks or so to provide her with the package. The reason why this is important is because by the time they provided her with the package, she was technically outside of the time frame in which she should have put in her LTD application. Mm. So for those listeners, usually you have three months past the point where you should start getting LTD to actually apply for LTD. So that's a long time, right? Like she's been off since last summer and theoretically she should have put in her application sometime in April. Okay. And so she does it Um, And she's technically somewhere between 7 and 37 days late, okay? That's what I've calculated, 7 to 37 days. Not a big amount of time, but the insurance company has said, you're out of time. Uh, You didn't notify us, we weren't aware of it, should have let us know. And part of that is, frankly, the employer, right? The employer's um, people should have made the insurance company aware, at least alerted them, look, this person's been off for a while, it could be that you're getting an LTD claim, they've also got a form they've got to submit and they didn't do that until you know my my client has had put in her material and so anyway she comes to us and and we're having this consultation i thought you know what you you definitely have a disability claim there's no question that this should be approved they're resisting you for a whole host of reasons but probably it's because they've looked at her profile and thought you know what she may be on claim with us until she's 65 years old that could be nearly 15 years for her, right? That's usually how long these disability benefits are paid for. So I'm looking at this and I said to her, I have no hesitation taking this on, no hesitation taking this on. Um, but I got to wonder whether your employer might be able to move the needle. So I gave her a little bit of advice. Obviously, our consultations are completely free. Um, and you know what, John, look, if people can problem solve with my help, I'm happy to provide it. Um, But it didn't turn out that way. So the employer even tried to persuade the insurer to say, hey, by the way, this is kind of on us. And, you know, there was a, a technical delay with the package and this kind of thing. Insurance company didn't care. They said no again. So I've said to her, we're going to start the process. And the reason why this is so compelling is because the courts have been really clear that there is recourse. There is a remedy. It's called relief from forfeiture. Very technical. Right. Lots. Of, yeah. Lots of legal terms. I get that. Um, just in very simple terms it's a forgiveness if there is a reasonable explanation that you can offer up to a judge or a court as to why you were delayed in putting in that application and you can show that it didn't really impact the insurance company's ability to look at your claim and take a hard look get all the medical information actually review it on its merits then you can be successful in getting the forgiveness for the seven days 37 days I mean, I've seen, you know, delays up to several months, in fact, years, John, I never want to encourage people that they've got a good claim on this basis, but Mm. certainly in this woman's situation, we're talking a matter of weeks, if not days. And I don't think the insurance company is on proper footing at all in denying her claim twice now, even when the employer has gone to them and has offered that reasonable explanation. They are not on the right side of the law on this. But it is a good takeaway for those who are listening that you wanna make sure that you've got a lot of clarity from your employer about your group disability coverages, what you're entitled to, when you're supposed to apply, and making sure that you're not delaying in doing that. Because generally speaking, I don't want to see people in this situation, John. A technical reason, in my mind, is the worst possible reason that an insurance company can deny a claim, because they're not even looking at the merits. You know, They don't even want to consider the real basis as to why she's pursuing disability. And it puts her in a really tough spot. So, look, we're there. We're going to help people. That's what we do day in and day out, but I thought it was a good one to start off our show on because it's something that we see a little bit, uh, but not as often as some of the other issues that we see where insurance companies are denying because either they're saying they don't have enough medical information or they're denying because they're thinking, well, you're not totally disabled enough. Um, these technical ones do crop up, and I think that they are just as valid a challenge to the disability insurer when you're getting a lawyer involved and starting that legal claim
1: which is why you always reach out and don't sit back in your laurels and accept all this stuff because there is help, at least explanation out there. Get uh, tomorrow, get your team on it any time, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. 821 5900 Reach out by phone, have that private conversation, help at disabilityrights.ca, which is where we're going to go right now. As, uh, as I mentioned off the top, Al, Evelyn's your first one up, says, guys, thanks for your disability shows, which made me want to reach out and ask some things. I'm currently on disability and have been since 2009. I have no means of returning back to work with my condition. I have MS, and it's been a roller coaster of symptoms, numbness, cognitive fog, pain. And I have a hard time walking, and I've been using a walker. The list goes on. I've had eight falls since the beginning of January of this year, 2023, due to a relapse that resulted in my left leg not working properly. It's called drop foot, resulting in foot drag when I walk. Though my doctor hasn't given me that that precise diagnosis, my question is, why does my insurance company always send forms to prove my disability, and then I have to get my doctor to fill it out? Nothing has changed with this disease. It just gets worse and worse. MS is a degenerative disease, has no cure. So why do I have to keep explaining to the insurance company about my condition? Can't they ask their own medical experts about this? It worries me that I'll get cut off. They did this once uh, when I didn't send my form in on time. LTD is my only means of And CPP disability. What do you think, Tamar? Brutal.
2: Wow, really, really compelling email, Evelyn. And, you know, it ties in so nicely to what I was saying from the start, right, John, is that these technical reasons. She tells us that she didn't submit her form on time one time and they decided to cut her off, right? It's just ridiculous because that's what insurance companies are looking for. They're looking for ridiculous reasons to cut people off. And I, I tend to agree with Evelyn that. Look, you know, I've had MS clients before, John. It doesn't get better with time. She will continue, unfortunately, to exhibit different types of symptoms along with the list, that, the laundry list that she's already provided. And so, you know, I think that it is a fair question to ask, look, I've been on claim now for over a decade. What is going on, insurance company, with these perpetual forms? And I think it's because they need to check off a box on there and they, they need to make sure that Evelyn is still alive and ticking that she's still undergoing treatment, that she's still experiencing the same conditions, because the core of the issue with disability benefits is that it is a monthly benefit, actually. Mm -hmm. It's a month-to-month thing. That is how they've set it up in their policies so that they can do these reviews on their end every month if they want to about whether or not Evelyn continues to meet the test of total disability. Look, my hope is that all they're sending her, John, is a yearly update. Or maybe twice a year asking her what's going on what's her regular activities and i hope that she sees it more as a check-in more so than having to prove her disability because i think that everything that she describes tells me that she is absolutely meeting the test of total disability she's also cpp approved And so it is a nuisance to actually have to complete these forms. Yes, absolutely. And I'm sorry for that, Evelyn. But the upside is, is that once you do, the idea is that you will continue getting that LTD benefit, provided the insurance company has checked in with you and has recognized that you're getting your ongoing benefits and you're still struggling with your health. And if they don't, Evelyn, I hope your very next call is to us.
1: And with that, very tiny break. And we'll get to that uh, break right now and get back with more of your emails and questions. In the meantime, you're thinking, okay, I want to send an email along, get it on a future show, or maybe later today, you can do so, help at disabilityrights.ca. And always pick up a phone and talk to Tamar and her team anytime, one 821 5900 Coming right back, lots more in store, so stick around as we continue with the Disability Law Show.
0: You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
1: You bet. Back with the Disability Law Show. Tamara Gopian is who you want to reach out to. Great team weather. Don't hesitate. The email address, help at disabilityrights.ca. And then one 821 5,900. Tomorrow, just before the break, we were dealing with Evelyn's email, among other things she was asking about the insurance company. Can't they have their own medical experts ask about this, her degenerative disease, her condition, so on and so forth, right?
2: A really good question, John, and I want to answer it quite directly, that You know, it's it's not always known to us, even though I've looked at, you know, thousands of claims files, it's not always clear to us at what point the insurance adjuster or the insurance company decides that this is the time that they're going to do a medical review or tap one of their own experts to have someone assess. And those are the, the ways they do it. That's part of their tool chest of things that they do in reviewing claims like Evelyn. And they can. Uh, it just it doesn't seem to be very clear about when they do it. I think in a situation like Evelyn, if you've been on claim for a long time, and unless you're really seeing a major change in the health profile, I would be surprised that they'd want to actually invest more money, John, in doing a review like this. Um, you know, they don't necessarily need to have that validation that Evelyn is meeting the test of total disability, I think with her claim in particular, they're just checking in to see that, you know, she's still in the same status and it's sort of more of a long duration type claim. She's probably been on for a long time and they're just making sure that she's uh, still on the same path of total disability. But if you are in the first year or two of your disability claim, then typically we see a lot more active review and that active review can include the insurance company sending out your medical file to one of their doctors they've got on the so-called rolodex and they pay them a thousand two thousand however much money to look at all of your medical records and provide comments to the insurance company about your disability claim and they're asked very specific questions john they're not asked to contact your doctors though and they're not asked to contact you but they will ask the doctor very specific pointed questions about you know Is this essentially a real disability claim? Um, And can this person work? And if so, when? And they will use those paper reviews as a means to try and close out claims early. If they're not satisfied, though, with those paper reviews, or if there's really something more that they need by way of information, or maybe they really need a good basis, uh, a strong basis to cut off your claim, they may actually send you to an independent medical assessment. And it's not independent, John. I mean, this is, you know, people that they hire. It's a hired gun. And they will have you reviewed or assessed by one of their own doctors, depending on what your disability is. Usually it lines up with your disability, say a physical one or a mental health one, and it'll be several hours. And again, very pointed questions asked to the expert and a fairly detailed report will get generated after that assessment is done. And so it's expensive and insurance companies are always looking at the bottom line. I mean, there's one insurer that actually does a cost benefit analysis on these kinds of things. And they'll say, okay, if we think we can close out this claim six months early um, and it's going to cost us X, then we're okay to spend half that to an expert that's going to be able to get us to close out the claim in three months, in half that time. And they will do those kinds of reviews uh, because they're very closely looking at what are we getting in terms of premiums and what are we actually paying out in these kinds of claims. So look, if you are in a situation like Evelyn where you're on a long duration, I think the likelihood of that is fairly low. Uh, but most of the people who listen to our shows, John, are usually in that first phase of their disability claim. They are still, you know, struggling with their health. They're still trying to figure out what to do with treatment. And the insurance company is looking for very regular updates from them and their doctors about how they're doing and looking really for some opportunities to try and end that claim if you are approved. Uh, and you know what, I have actually even find that you know, we were talking about this in our group um, a couple of weeks ago, our, our team of lawyers and our great paralegals about, you know, are there policies and procedures that these adjusters follow? You know, we're always looking for more information about how they approach these kinds of claims, John. And um, one of the things we've been getting is a little bit of a dodge from the insurance companies about whether or not these kinds of manuals or guidelines actually exist. Uh, We're challenging one insurer on this uh, in a a motion context on a file, but more generally, I think there's a lot of uh, non-existence of these things. I think generally there aren't a lot of guidelines that insurance companies are providing to their adjusters about what to do in certain steps and phases of these claims. And I, I think that's an opportunity for us lawyers to capitalize on that and to really push on disability insurers to say, hey, you made the wrong decision, and by the way, you're not training your people, you're not giving them the right guidance, right, of how to review and assess these claims. Many of these adjusters don't even have any sort of medical background. So yeah, a medical review does make some sense in certain phases of the disability claim. But more importantly, are you getting all the medical information from the claimant? And how are you reviewing and assessing that? So really important things that we're really aware of and opportunities that we see that we can really advocate and push that envelope for our clients uh, against these insurers.
1: Company. Does it help them, that IME, defend legal claim, if you get involved for a client, or, or does it backfire?
2: You know, that's an interesting one, too. I, I think, generally speaking, the scales, so to speak, are weighted in our favor. So whether that IME is there or not the courts have been clear that they will prefer the treating doctors over the hired higher. Yeah, okay. You know, 99% of the time, um, you know, and this is what I always tell my clients as well is that, you know, they ask me, Oh, tomorrow, you know, am I going to get assessed? Am I going to be sent to an assessment? Are you going to send me somewhere? And I say, look, you know, I think your best way of dealing with your disability claim and your insurer is to lean on your own medical team. Just make sure that you're following your own doctor's advice. You're getting the referrals, seeing the specialists, Doing the things that make sense for the condition that you have and not necessarily needing some five, ten thousand dollar expert report that the insurance company has generated and having to respond to it. So with IMEs, John, you know, as I said earlier, there will be very specific questions being asked. And I generally find that those specific questions can be so effectively rebutted by my (laughs) clients and their and their doctor, right? The doctor themselves will say, No, you got this wrong, you got that wrong. We've already tried that treatment. I've already given that opinion that my client isn't going to return to work or my patient isn't going to return to work for the next six months for these five reasons. And you know, because these IME doctors have a mission, right? They're being paid by the insurance company to get to a certain conclusion. They are inherently biased and the courts know it. And the insurance companies know it. So I find if I've got a good, solid medical file, good basis for the disability claim, the IME tends to be really secondary. As much as the insurance companies think that it's their smoking gun, I generally think that it's not, it doesn't play out that way. And it certainly hasn't been a barrier for resolution. And that's the key I think that our listeners need to hear is that we've got a really high degree of success in settling our claims for our clients within months, sometimes, even if there is an IME if we've got good support from your own doctors, that the disability claim is valid, is being treated, and is preventing someone from working.
1: It always seems to me, too, that with the IMEs, I mean, it's, you know, to your point, you may have years of your own treating Doctors, you know, on your side because that's who's treating your client. They have this doctor that maybe it's a paper file. They never actually see your client. It, it just seems to me, to a lesser degree, like surveillance. It can totally backfire on them. They might have fifty hours of surveillance that shows absolutely nothing, and that's, that's good for right. you. And to me, I, I kind of always make that, that relation between the two. I, it's probably not accurate, but that, that's how it seems to me that the IME. Eh, if it's a doctor that doesn't know you, you know, how does that hold any water, really?
2: That, that's right, exactly, and it and it does look. Um, very strategic and poor on insurers that they're actually trying to uh, undermine the valid disability claim by doing these kinds of things, which is the IME and, to your point, surveillance. I mean, so surveillance, you know, it doesn't happen as often as we think, but it's certainly in that tool chest of things that disability adjusters will use as a means of trying to, you know, catch you in doing something that you said you couldn't do um, and try to make some hay out of that. And the, the strange part about surveillance, John, is that it, it's, it's never like that, right? I mean, every disability claimant that I speak with who has a legitimate disability may have a good day where they're going out and doing things that perhaps they don't normally do. That, that's totally okay. In fact, total disability doesn't mean you're laid up in bed every single day and not right. leaving your home or not engaging in any activities. Many disabilities will have a very clear advice from doctors and other professionals to say, no, no, you should be exercising or you should be going out and doing something. You should be engaging with the world as part of your recovery. And so insurance companies with this notion of, well, we're going to Taking it, you know, get an investigator and, you know, look around and see what you're doing for a couple of days. We're going to dig around your social media and we're going to take these five pictures you've taken over the last nine years and, and say, oh, yep, you're, you're good to go. You should be working. It's, it's a very poor approach, but one that we still continue to see play out, John. And so, this is why we don't have any hesitation taking on these claims, even if the denial is based on surveillance. If the surveillance observations are not accurate, or they don't align, or they don't represent the, the true full picture, then courts are not persuaded by it. I mean, you know, it, it reminds me of that decision that came out last year now against one of the big insurers, where they had had, you know, several hundred hours of surveillance The court only really allowed a few hours of it and they were not persuaded by it at all. And it opened the door for the court to warrant damages against the insurance company for having taken this kind of tactic. I think they even had an IME in that case, if I recall correctly. So the insurance company was emboldened by having an ime that they felt was strong that undermined the disability claim and then this and then the hours and hours of surveillance and we saw how that played out right it was wholly found in favor of the claimant Um, she not only won her past benefit she was reinstated and she got a whack of punitive damages and all her costs paid back so it was a huge huge win but also a great takeaway for us to say, hey, insurance company, these tactics are not playing out well for you guys. And so if this is the basis of your defense going forward, uh, we, you've got to take another hard look at this. And that is how we get great results for our clients.
1: Let's get uh, grab another email here before sure. we uh, get into a break. And that would be uh, Carlos up next. says, guys, was supposed to return to work on an approved return to work uh, with accommodation next week, but my company terminated me, saying my role was reorganized. I was given a four-week package. I was also on medical care, which the disability insurance company was aware would impact my return to work. What do I do now? Oh, Carlo,
2: I don't like these situations <laughs> at all, John. Um, but it's one that really focuses on the fact that you can be in a situation where you are on disability on a medical leave, like he was trying to make your way back to work. And then the employer makes a poor decision in terminating you. And I say poor decision because, you know, there are some human rights issues that come up in my mind right away, John, when I think about Carlos situation, you know, was the fact that he was returning from a medical leave part of the decision making for his employer in having terminated him. And why it's so important for these kinds of um, emails and questions to be asked of us, John, is because we do specialize in both disability law and employment law. And there are many instances where you see a lot of overlap. And Carlo's situation is exactly that. So he could potentially have much greater uh, entitlements against his employer for compensation I mean i'd want to understand you know his years of service john you know how long uh, he'd been working at this company you know what his pay and scale were all of those things are really really important and as i said this idea of additional compensation potentially because he was returning back from a medical leave but he also lost his benefits right that's what he was telling us is that look i needed my medical benefits and they you know they terminated me in the midst of all of that really really difficult situation And the employer does have an obligation to actually work with you on your return back to work. If you require, you know, accommodations, for example, you would submit a medical note and you would say, these are my ongoing restrictions and limitations, employer, you need to accommodate that. And that it's a procedural duty and a substantive duty. And so that duty is an important one for employers to know that they have to engage with you through that whole process. So I think Carlos got some rights here. I want to delve into the medical profile as well to see how legitimate his attempt to return to work was. In other words, does he still have a basis for a disability claim as well? Uh, but most certainly, this is one where I think my uh, employment colleagues would take up in a heartbeat in terms of pursuing additional compensation for him.
1: And with that, guys, we'll take a short break. Get right back into more. You have an opportunity anytime, by the way, to reach out to tomorrow. not just during the show with email. You can also call. It's 1-855-821-5900 and help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue more of the Disability Law Show. Hang in
0: there. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
1: Yes, this is the Disability Law Show. Good to have you along for the hour. You can always reach out to Tamar or a member of her, uh, her crew to talk uh, on your own time. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Email address we always use is help at disabilityrights.ca before the break we're talking about Carlo uh, faced with a return to work um, in the next week or two given a four week package was reorganized by his employer Uh, tell me a, a little more about that tomorrow when it comes to dealing with that in Carlo's case what do you think
2: Yeah, I I think what I was thinking about during our break was, you know, what communication was actually had between the insurance company and the employer, right? This idea that he was reorganized, you know, right at the heels of him getting back from a medical leave, you know, that concerns me. And I I sort of provided my comments about that. But what information actually flowed from the insurance company, the employer about this, and whether that informed the decision um, that the employer made to terminate? Uh, this is one where it gets a little murky because without seeing Carlo's claims file, I wouldn't necessarily know what was said between the insurance company and the employer, but I think that that would be an important piece of information to have. It's because the insurance company, when you are on, if assuming Carlo was on disability for a while, when you're on disability, the insurance company has Generally, an obligation to provide periodic updates to your employer, if it's a group disability plan, that is, to let them know, look, this is what's happening in the steps and stages of your adjudication or your claim. Um, and when you're on the cusp of potentially returning back to work, most insurers will coordinate that a little bit with the employer to say, hey, you know, we've set up this return to work plan. Typically, it's gradual. It's, you know, a four to eight week period, let's say. And this is what's going to happen with Carlo. And he's going to come back to work, you know, two days a week, work in half days, and then work his way up to full-time work. That coordination, if you are on claim with a disability insurer, usually the disability insurer will do that for you. The adjuster will will set that up. And then you might have a return to work meeting before you return. And, you know, there's a conversation between insurance company and employer and Carlo about, like, this is what we're expecting you to do. And what I find strange about Carlo's situation is the fact that there was a termination at the back end of that so i gotta wonder what did the insurance company say to the employer about the return to work and the likelihood of the return or the likelihood of a full-time return to duties that may have then influenced the employer as to what they decided to do in the end look if it was reorganized it's reorganized i suppose there can be restructuring uh but i find it odd that it was you know carlo in this situation and you know what kind of influence was the insurance company having on this and so it brings to mind a claim, actually, John, that I'm, I'm dealing with right now for a client where he was uh, approved for LTD, then denied somewhere along the way, then he gets approved for CPP disability, insurance company puts him back on claim, and then some months later terminates him yet again on another wonky decision and at the heels of that his employer actually terminates him. So he gets an LTD denial and then within a a month of that gets terminated from his employment. And so there is absolutely an argument there that whatever the insurance company did influenced and compromised what his employer did as well. So it sort of opens up a new argument to some extent or a new avenue against insurance companies about what they're doing and whether or not what they've communicated or what they've done with the employer is negatively impacting what's happening with someone's employment. They shouldn't be doing that. Like they shouldn't be interfering. Um, They shouldn't be influencing that decision. It's supposed to be a very neutral update to the employer to say, yeah, this person's ready to return back to work or we're continuing their, their benefits or we think that they're not totally disabled and we're cutting them off. And then it's up to the employer then to make some choices. Either way, uh, you know, sitting here as a claimant lawyer on the plaintiff's side of things, John, I like it because it provides me opportunities, right, to advocate for clients and claimants in situations like this, both against the employer and the insurer.
1: And again, guys, reaching out with your own questions. If anything we uh, talk about here is uh, in the least bit confusing, don't hesitate to reach out to tomorrow team, one uh, Leslie? up next? Let's get to her email. says, uh, hi, my name is Leslie. I am and was a dental hygienist for many years before neck and back problem caused me to stop working full time. I purchased a private disability plan back in 96. I've been fighting with my insurer for almost two years to get the benefits I was entitled to and finally succeeded in November of 2022 and just received part two of my benefits and have been approved ongoing. Question is this, the adjuster I had was negligent in my mind, not responding to emails, twisting conversations we had by phone, uh, misrepresenting information I had provided. I found the process abusive and traumatic. The amount of paperwork I did uh, due to his lack of response, not being forthcoming with obvious information was astronomical and even further detrimental to my neck and back. I've since learned I was supposed to have phone conversations and uh, he was to request my medical chart and didn't. I finally succeeded to get payment and action when I sent a long email outlining what I'd been through with this adjuster to the provincial ombudsman, the ombudsman of my insurer and the benefit department. My case was transferred uh, to the manager, and my case has been handled perfectly and transparently ever since. Apparently, they use my case for training purposes, but I think that's BS. I think <laughs> that uh, is to encourage people to quit, but when they do not go away, then they transfer. It was unbelievable uh, what happened to me, the stress it caused. My question is this, Tamar, is there a possibility of punitive damages? I feel this is wrong. So many are in desperate need and do not understand their rights or are afraid to hire a lawyer and give in or give up to the bullying from these companies. Many consider suicide as, as a hopelessness uh, as a hopelessness of their situation, become entrenched in a financial mess of accumulated interest while they fight for their benefits uh, that is difficult to get out of. I understand the duty to provide medical information for sure, proof, but ethics entails they have a duty to be transparent, to respond to questions and queries, to explain the policies so the client understands that it's very clear, not done in my case, and is likely happening to many others. I'd like to know your thoughts on this matter. Thank you very much much well wow, really detailed by Leslie but yeah BS is the big word out of that when you can uh, you can take home
2: right that's that's absolutely a- absolutely what what an amazing email John I-, I think we should get Leslie to come on and be a guest on our show eh? Totally. like next week yeah. uh, just just touches on so much of what it is that we do and the issues that we see on these disability claims right she talks about it with such passion about conversations that should have happened that didn't paperwork that was submitted that wasn't reviewed right um and i give her a ton of credit for continuing to persevere on her own to get these issues remedied get an adjuster on her file that's actually going to do something productive with her and yes absolutely there's a possibility of a punitive damages claim here absolutely no doubt in my mind What gets tricky, though, from a technical perspective is, do you want to pursue that claim as a standalone claim when your LTD benefits are continuing? And that's a tough question to answer. You know, why do I say that? It's because, generally speaking, when we get retained on behalf of claimants, it's because their LTD benefits have been cut off. And we absolutely are looking for, you know, what other legal recourses are there? And is there, in fact, a basis for a damages claim? the vast majority of our disability claims, usually there's a kernel of that, John, and that is part of the profile of what we advance on behalf of our clients and claimants. So the question becomes, you know, could it be that in a situation where your benefits are still ongoing, that you want to actually pursue your legal rights I wouldn't be, you know, reluctant to do it. I think that it is something that has an absolute basis to it. But I think you want to be careful that if you're still receiving your LTD benefit, are you then poking the bear from the insurer's perspective by pursuing a legal claim just on a standalone for damages? Yeah. But let's, let's talk about this a little more, more maybe after our next break.
1: We sure will, and we'll get to uh, more questions from My Disability Rights, or at least MyDisabilityQuestions.com, and your emails, help at disabilityrights.ca. And again, phone in, 1-855-821-5900. Anytime we're not doing the show, that number is available for you. Disability
0: Disability Law Show continues. Stand by.
1: All right, we're back. A few minutes left to go here on the Disability Law Show for this week. Beyond that, you can always reach out. Doesn't mean you can MyDisabilityQuestions.com is a good place to start. That has got a searchable database, which is kind of cool how that algorithm works. You can look for a question that you had in mind. Maybe it has been asked previously and answered, so use that particular feature. If not, leave your question there. Always emails. We read them. Help at DisabilityRights.ca and the phone number to reach Tamar and her team, one 855 Eight two Let's get back to uh, Leslie's lengthy but very detailed email about dealing with an adjuster and frustration until things were escalated and now asking if there's a possibility of what they call punitive damages as well, Tamar. Continue on with that thought.
2: Absolutely. So punitive damages. There, there's actually a couple of categories of damages that courts in Ontario and across Canada have awarded in favor of claimants in situations where insurance companies have, have behaved badly and punitive damages is the is the high watermark. That's the one where the court has said it is so bad that we're going to slap your wrist, you have made uh, poor decisions, it's callous, it's high-handed, uh, you know, all of these legal terms that they've used in these decisions, and we're going to award a, an amount, a, a series of compensation, in order to, to try and make it right, I suppose, for what the insurance company has put the claimant through. But there's actually other buckets as well, John. It's not just punitive damages. There's aggravated damages and mental distress damages. Those can sometimes sound the same, but they're a little bit different and there are actually other elements of compensation for people. Look, do they get awarded regularly? No. But if you are fighting your insurer, and it does get before a judge or a court, I think it's important that your lawyer recognize, (laughs) whoever it is, if it's not us, that there are these other elements. And mental distress in particular, the courts have said that the bar, the evidence to show us that there's mental distress isn't that high. You've just got to show that there's a disturbance that you've experienced as a result of what the insurance company has done or how they've treated you. And I got to tell you, the vast majority of people I represent, John, have absolutely expressed and have felt that mental distress as a result of either how they were treated and or how they were cut off from benefits and then what they've experienced after that cutoff. When, to Leslie's point, you know, you, you drive up financial stress, you don't have your monthly benefit, you know, you've got all of these increasing uh, pressures along with having to deal with your health issues. And so, I think it's important when we talk about damages these are amounts that are compensation that's over and above what you would be awarded for an ltd benefit over and above what your monthly benefit is and so it you know it doesn't exist in every case but i think it's important that uh, people realize that this is exposure against the insurance company and we leverage that exposure it is absolutely part of the conversation when i talk about advocating for my clients i do Leverage that to the, against the insurer to say, Hey, if you're going to run with this defense or these three things that you did in your file that aren't right, uh, this isn't going to play out well for the, t- for the insurance company. So what you want to do is actually resolve the claim early with me, with my help. Um, and let's make this make sense for my client so that they're getting the compensation they deserve and then some. But in the context of that, I think what's really compelling with Leslie's comments is the idea that people, um, may give up. And I never want people to feel that they don't have a choice or an option when they're dealing with a disability insurer. This is why we do the shows. This is why we do free consultations. We are here to help people. And I never want people to feel that that is the end of the line. That What the insurance company is saying to them must be true or is right or is correct. So many people, John, walk away. Exactly what Leslie described. So many people do not have the fight in them. And I get that. I totally get that which is why I want to help, which is why any member of our team wants to help. Because that sense of wanting to give up means that people are giving up massive amounts of compensation, not only for their damages and their benefits, but all of it together and the mental distress, all of the things that we've talked about in the context of her email are super important to impose upon the insurer because I can assure you that there is a light at the end and a light will include a whack of compensation that you are absolutely owed.
1: Let's get to one here again, help at disabilityrights.ca says, uh, hi Tamar, can you answer on your show how you address conflicting medical reports? Thank you very much.
2: Good one. Um, So how do we deal with conflicting medical reports? I think that the question then becomes who's conflicting with who? Okay. So is it your doctor conflicting with what the insurance company's doctor is saying? Or is it your own doctors, your own treating doctors, perhaps your family doctor and a specialist who are conflicting in their opinion? I think that is a key difference because if there's a conflict between your own doctor and what the insurance company's doctor is saying, the answer is super easy. You follow your own medical advice. Okay. The people who are treating you, the doctors and practitioners and physiotherapists and chiropractor and psychiatrists, anybody in your care is there for you. They are in your care. The ones that the insurance companies have lined up that they are arm's length to the insurance company. In other words, they are being paid by the insurer. Their interests are aligned with the insurer, even if they are treating, even if they're doing rehabs or assessments or whatever they are doing at the end of the day, they're being paid for by the insurance company. So if there is a conflict with medical opinions on that, you want to prefer and choose the path of the ones of the doctors that are treating you. Now, if you do have conflicting medical reports, though, on your end, where it's two doctors have seen you and have given different opinions, I think there's more nuance there, John. I think that if they both agree, though, that you can't work as a result of your health issue, then not a problem. But if there's a disconnect about one saying that you can work and the other saying that you can't work, you want to break the tie somehow. And either way, both of those opinions are valid. And if they are driven by a medical basis, then you have to make some choices around what you feel is the best path forward knowing and recognizing that the insurance company may want to wedge and split the difference there, and they may get their own doctor at that point to review your situation, and they will draw their own conclusions about whether or not you meet the test of total disability. But either way, it's not fatal to a disability claim. It just depends on where it's coming from and what the opinion is that's being given.
1: Always oh, good stuff. So much more always to talk about. We're going to leave it there for this particular show. Reach out now to tomorrow. Don't hesitate. She loves talking to you and educating you for sure. It is help at disabilityrights.ca. And the phone number anytime, one 5,900. And we will catch you next time. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, We'll be back with another edition of the Disability Law Show. The
0: preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.